Hello and welcome to the Delco Skate Park Coalition podcast. The Delco Skate Park Coalition is a nonprofit organization of skate enthusiasts, parents, and disability rights advocates looking to build adaptive and inclusive skate parks in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Aaron Lopez, and we are the podcast that covers all things about skateboarding, skate parks, and not just skate parks, but ADA, accessible, adaptive all wheels, and inclusive skate parks in Delco and beyond. I'm really excited about this interview today. I'm speaking with Everett Tates, who is the Business Development Manager and Community Outreach Specialist with New Line Skate Parks. Some of New Line's designs have included ADA features that increase the accessibility of their skate parks to a broader range of skaters and adaptive athletes. Everett, thank you so much for being here today and talking about New Line's designs and your own skate history. Yeah, thank you. I'm stoked. Thanks for having me. So the question, you know, we ask everybody uh, who comes onto this podcast is, uh, where are you from and when did you get your first skateboard? Yeah, so I was born and raised up in Alberta, Canada. So I've spent, um, yeah, basically all of my life up in the Rocky Mountains of Canada, not uh, a place where skateboarding is an intrinsic activity. We have a fairly short season every year. Uh, so kind of a limited opportunity growing up. But I do recall as a kid, I think it was mid-80s likely, I got a hand-me-down banana board from one of my uncles. And I remember just being fascinated with it, like having an instant attraction to it. It was obviously pretty limited in what I could do on it. It had a ton of flex to it. It was made of plastic. Um, you know, big wheels, but I figured out enough just to ride up and down the street. And that kind of hooked me. And it wasn't until later in, you know, elementary school that I found a couple friends that were also interested. And we just got the cheapest boards we could get from the local shop. It was in a mall, I think. And it had the big plastic bubble on the back. Again, really fun, but really limiting in terms of how far we could progress. Yeah, how did those things do going downhill? Not great. Those, th- those <laughs> yeah, those those boards don't do anything that great. I remember us, you know, having to smash off the plastic bubbles on the back of our our big boards. But um, it wasn't until maybe middle school that I got my first legit board on a trip with my parents down to San Francisco, um, and it, this thing was like, uh, you know, a w- first trip to a real real skate shop because we didn't have one at home. Um, or the one that we had was pretty limited. And uh, yeah, I got this board off the wall. And I remember taking it home. And because it was winter, that board sat for about three months. I I sort of rocked back and forth on the carpet a little bit. <laughs> and uh, I was a p- pretty big kid growing up. So finally, the snow melted. I took it out into the streets. And I think I snapped it in half within the first no. day or two of skating it. <laughs> being a being a bigger kid and and my parents not having a lot of disposable income I got a lot of hand-me-down boards so my first boards were scraps like really what I could put together what I could skate Uh, and then it wasn't I took a little break from skating played you know some fairly traditional sports and activities through the end of middle school and really picked it back up in in high school, and that's when I got interested enough, and you know, had a bit of a side job that I could start uh, affording to shop at our local skate shop and and get my own stuff. And it, from there, it was just yeah, it, it was nonstop. Yeah. So when you finally got to a place where you were able to get a board, you know, you you were working a bit, you mm-hmm. could afford to buy your own board. What kind of uh, what kind of board did you get, and then wh- what kind of skate terrain did you have? We grew up. We had a we had a couple mini ramps around town that we would have to drive out of town for, and they were particularly good because we could skate them in the winter as long as we had a little 
you know, space heater that we could put in there. We would still have to wear, you know, winter jackets and winter mitts and toques while we skated. Um, did I just say toques? That really makes yeah, me what Canadian. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> That's a beanie. That's a beanie for your American audience. Um, I did not. But yeah, we had, we had a little mini ramp called the pickle parlor. And that really was where I learned to skate. And so I instantly fell in love with transition skating. A huge inspiration of mine back then was John Cardiel watching the way that he skated parts and transition. Um, you know, I, there was something about that that I could relate to, even though I would never get to that level of skating. So at that time, I loved skating transition. It was a natural fit to love anti-hero and the boards and, and the stuff that they put out. And so that's sort of where I pledged my allegiance in skateboarding. I stayed pretty close to that. Yeah. So you yeah. had this this area called the Pickle, was it the Pickle Parlor? Pickle Parlor. Yeah. Tell me a little yeah. bit more about what what you had there. Well, it's funny that we're talking about accessibility in skate parks. The Pickle Parlor was not a very accessible space. It was... You needed to know, first of all, you needed to know someone with a key to get in. It was a barn about 45 minutes out of town. So you had to know someone that was going to drive you out there. Someone with a key to the space. And, you know, you get into this barn, you got to crawl through a few cubby holes into the back of this barn where you could turn on one or two floodlights and the space heater. And it was a about a four foot mini ramp about 30 feet wide uh six foot extension so it was really nothing special but for us that was like the hub of our skate community until a few years down the road we advocated and got a skate park you know the first skate park built in our in our small city um, how old were you about that time when you were you you were skateboarding at the pickle parlor so that was probably 15, 16, 17, right in that range. So high school, you know, in middle school and elementary when I was just dabbling in skateboarding, it was a lot of just local sidewalks, curbs, um, empty parking lots, things like that. And then after you skateboard at the pickle parlor, then it sounds like you meet up with some people and you guys get more serious about telling your community that they need to put in a skate park yeah there was a push for quite a while like is the story with a lot of communities uh to get that initial space and when we finally did you know it was a product of some napkin sketches uh local sidewalk finishing crew so there wasn't really a design at that point mm -hmm. it's it was just and and hired a you know a concrete contractor that mm -hmm. would normally lay out sidewalks Mm -hmm. So what was the terrain like on this, this first skate park? I mean, for 25 plus years ago, it was, it was game changing for us because it gave, gave us a space. Uh, you know, it was sanctioned by the community. We were allowed to be there. Uh, we weren't getting chased by security. We weren't getting chased by shop owners. It gave us our own space. How big was it? Uh, it was about, I want to say about 10,000 square feet. Okay. So fairly average size. Um, looking back at it now, and it, you know, it still stands there today. And so I'll go back and even though there's a more modern modern skate park in the city, we'll go back there and skate. And it's only now that you realize just how lumpy the concrete was. Um, you know, the use of angle iron instead of traditional coping, uh, the angles of the tabletops and hips and it's it was pretty messy now that you look at it um but like i said at the time it was absolutely game changing for for all of us yeah and it sounds like you mentioned it was a safe space where you guys could skate where you weren't getting chased out by police or security or anything like that how much time did you spend there when you were younger every moment we could yeah even, you know, when we were supposed to be in school, we were 
um, you know, smoking pot and heading down to the skate park. So we spent far more time than even we maybe should have. Um, but that was our obsession. And so, you know, when I look back and I think, I say it was a safe space for us. It was really looking back. It was safe for us. It wasn't necessarily safe for the whole community. And, and skate parks have come a lot long way and the skate community has come a long way to be more inclusive but because i think our roots were out of rebellion and having like i said be chased by security we really took ownership over that initial spot and probably to a fault where we really sort of gatekeeped that environment um, because it was a space that we fought so hard for um that we thought we owned it not looking at as a as an opportunity for everybody in the community did you um you know as as then as you got older did you look at this kind of this early time where you were spending time at this first skate park as sort of um you know your thoughts about design and accessibility were were some of your thoughts about that inspired from these early experiences that you had at this skate park looking back at it it was a culmination of experience yeah but because skateboarding was sort of the pillar and consistent thing in my life, as I grew up and matured, obviously, and went to university and actually became an educator in special education, started looking at things like curriculum design and program design through the lens of accessibility. Yeah, so I mean, I taught in traditional education. My roots were in what they formerly called special education. Um, now we have an inclusive education model that doesn't use the same terminology. But I worked essentially in sort of intensive treatment settings uh, for high-risk youth, uh, youth with differing abilities, uh, different diagnoses. And so I really started getting passionate about the way we taught and what we taught in a means of making it more accessible, that started to inform my perspective on how I looked at everything. So it was really through some of those learnings that I started to look back at my skateboarding and looking at skate parks, skate spaces, skate environments, skate culture, and starting to question, you know, how accessible is it really? And looking at, at things like that. And, and once those questions started it's a bit of a rabbit hole because you start the conversations and you learn others perspectives and um as you know <laughs> it's uh it can get pretty deep pretty fast so that's i think that's a really kind of fascinating crossroads that you have this experience um you know you, you're skateboarding from a young age and then you go into a career in education where you're working with a broad range of students with different abilities. Um, and it sounds like that really shapes your perspective. And then you start to take that and apply it to kind of your, your background and your passion for skateboarding. So in my teaching career, as I mentioned, I was lucky to work with students for, with a variety of different needs and abilities, um, which informed my philosophy on teaching. Through my teaching career, I actually got to write some skateboard curriculum and, and got one of the first locally approved skateboard options in Canada operating at our school uh, where students could skate for credit. And so now I was applying my... That's so teaching. great. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was awesome. It was a highlight of my I career. I have loved that sure. growing up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So the students that you worked with were able to skateboard for credit, for school mm -hmm. credit. Yeah. And so that That's was so innovative. It was it was awesome. And the the response from the kids was everything, because here I was working with a group of kids that did not have a positive relationship to school. Uh, they had low attendance rates. They didn't have good relationships with the majority of the faculty at the school. And all of a sudden, they were showing up early for class. They were staying late. They were becoming mentors to some of the younger students in the school. Um, and they were now having a positive connection where they hadn't to their education. And so that became 
obviously a bridge and a gateway to get to teach them a whole bunch of other things outside of just the act of skateboarding. But in terms of sort of the adaptive lens of skateboarding, the, through working with them, through developing curriculum, I had to start asking myself some of those questions. How do I adapt this for this specific group with a massive variety of, of needs? For the active skateboarding, the cool thing is a lot of that comes naturally because we're used to new skaters coming in at varying levels and abilities. And so you naturally adapt the way that you're teaching them or you adapt the environment slightly or teach them how to adjust where their feet are on their board based on their own specific needs. And so starting to look at the environment a little bit differently was sort of a natural transition from there, so to speak. What a really cool program you developed, um, especially the one where you you bring them in with skateboarding, they get connected to school through skateboarding, mm -hmm. and then they start to, you know, develop other skills because of the skateboarding curriculum that you developed. Um, th that is amazing. Are you still doing some of that work or did you move into new line and start to think about design? So my, my transition into new line was through some of those programming initiatives um, it just so happened that New Line had designed and built the skate park that was essentially on the school property that I was working on. Oh, tell me a little bit about that. Like what, how did that all take shape? Yeah, so going back um, about 10 years ago, I had started a skate club at the school that I was working at. And so at that time I was a school counselor um, working out of the central office and we had started a skate club for after school programming and we just had an asphalt pad with a few ramps on it and rails that we would pull out and I mean we had a great time um, kids were stoked they got to skate with their teacher after school so it was a win-win I got yeah. to you know stretch my legs and, and keep <laughs> skating cool. and uh, then our municipality was starting to look at a viable site for the future modern skate park. And so they had heard a little bit of the programming that was happening at our school. We had a large parcel of land in front of our school. And that's sort of where the negotiations started of, would this be a good site for a future skate park? Of course, I put my hand up and said, this would be a perfect site. We're already doing this skate club. This would be a perfect extension of the school. It's highly visible, it's highly accessible from the community. We have a huge student population, so lots of youth in the community. It was a lower socioeconomic area of the city. So we know that the children and youth and, and local community would benefit from having this accessible amenity. And so that conversation started, we eventually got the skate park built. And from there, I was able to write the program and then write it into the programming of the school and take it from there. Through that, I had built a relationship with New Line Skate Parks because they had sort of heard of what was happening around the skate park. And we just kept that conversation going until several years down the road, um, they reached out to me and asked if I was interested in taking on a role within the company, doing things like community outreach, um, telling the story of why skate parks are important, what you can do with skate parks. And then we just kind of took it from there. That one, of course, sounds like um, a really awesome job. Thanks. That was fun for me. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a super awesome job. And it also sounds like this, like, really cool segue into kind of talking about some of those things that mm -hmm. you just mentioned about um, accessibility and design and, um, you know, what are some of the things that, you know, are kind of the values that New Line Skate Parks has just, you know, in terms of building, because you guys have been involved in a lot of projects, right? There's, I think, 400 yeah. or so projects for New Line. Yeah, I think we officially say 400, but it's got to be um, More know, like New 500 Line, or 600. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. New Line's been at it 
for 22 years now. Um, and the skate park industry is an interesting one because it was really built from the ground up. There was no template, there was no exemplar. Um, so, you know, the founders of the company were really, it was the wild west in the beginning of skate park design and construction because there was no template regulations uh, or standard approach. And that has been developed over the last, you know, uh, a couple of decades. But in terms of overall values and philosophy, I mean, I can speak to my values and philosophy and I can speak to our company's values and philosophy and sort of how all of us within the team are coming at it from a slightly different perspective. I can certainly say my perspective and my pull into this area was more through equity and inclusion being uh, that's sort of where my roots were at. And that's what I was most passionate about is sort of everybody's right to play, everybody's right to access um, more from a social justice lens. And then we have, you know, highly passionate landscape architects that study accessibility through that professional design lens. And so looking at how far we can take that into the skate park environment is a fairly new topic of conversation. Um, you know, the, the skate park evolution has gone through a lot from just the very, very basics of how do we, in the first place, get these built? How do we get a city, a municipality to agree to a skate park? We're now sort of, I'm hoping, you know, we're still in, in that zone, but I'm hoping we can get past that conversation and say, these are standard amenities for any municipality. Uh, if you want to retain young families, you want to give youth something to do, this is now a standard amenity and facility that that your municipality needs to have you know um, it's interesting because one of the things that a lot of municipalities especially you know out here well in anywhere but you know out here in the northeast is they will set aside a budget for things like a, a playground and playgrounds are great um you know my own kids certainly played at them a lot but then at about mm -hmm. age seven they were done and then from between like seven and when, you know, they're in their later teen years, there's really, you know, not a lot for that population in our area. And we, like a lot of families found ourselves driving long distances to get to skate parks, which is what they wanted to do when they were, you know, teenagers and still do as young adults. So I, I always found that such an interesting thing that municipalities would spend so much money on playgrounds that would benefit you know, a very short segment of time in terms of, you know, these, this population of one to six-year-olds or not even mm. one-year-old, but like two to six-year-olds. And then after that, what do we do for these kids that are still part of our communities? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think there is a push to get kids into organized sports and organized activities, but we know that not every youth is attracted to that. And so, if you aren't engaged in those more traditional activities, what are they doing? And so there needs to be some lower barrier uh, activities for them to do. The wonderful thing about skate parks is after that upfront initial cost, there is no registration fee. There's no time you have to be there. There's no coach, there's no manual. Um, equipment was relatively cheap so you know i would i would argue this is one of the lowest barrier forms of recreation we have in our communities um just because it's accessible yeah and so i mean i'm i'm obviously a proponent and in those situations you know where you're having to drive your kids 45 minutes an hour to the nearest skate park that is also an issue of equity because yeah. What about those kids, families without means of, of transport? And, you know, what recreation opportunities do they have immediately in their community? Um, with skate parks becoming a very viable option. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And especially in terms of being able to put a skate park in an area that you know, is easy to get to, easy to access. And that's, that's not even just for, um, 
for families, kids, but that's also for uh, adaptive skaters as well. Hi, everyone. This is Luca Krumpetich. If you would like to support the mission of the Delco Skate Park Coalition, please go to www.skatedelco.org. Thanks for listening. One of the things that I thought was really inspiring about some of New Line's designs is that you guys have um, paid attention to um, adaptive users. Um, and I was wondering if you could like share some of the features in like New Line's design or, or and as, as you said, this is a really new area. Um, but what are some of those maybe ADA features that you you have seen as being um, something that you can put in a skate park and it's still a great design that everybody wants to skate there? Yeah, I, th- I mean, that's such a broad topic and I'm excited to delve into it. Um, I, first of all, the the range of adaptive users is so broad. And so it's tough to put a single label and say, these features are going to work for adaptive skaters, um, you know, adaptive WCMX riders, um, because they all have very unique needs. And so where I believe that this is evolving and, and New Line certain, our approach certainly is through that community consultation and and really hearing from the users themselves on what those individual needs might be and making really, really small but effective adaptations where we can. And, and you know, in, in a way that allows for effective use of the entire park by all users, but provides that adaptive element required for, let's say a visually impaired skater or a rider in a wheelchair um, or, you know, with varying needs. And so looking at things a little bit differently in terms of the texture of the park. So adding a texture that provides a means of wayfinding for visually impaired skaters. That's a really, really small adaptive change that doesn't affect the overall rideability what would make a huge difference for that visually impaired skater. If there was a tactile surface on the ground that their wheels rolled over, that let them know that, you know, they were three or four feet out from an obstacle or let them know what quadrant of the skate park that they were in or what they were approaching. Um, So things as small as texture on the ground. Um, Things like ride on and ride off ledges. And so looking at a ledge a little bit differently, and instead of having a hard cutoff, having a ride on and a ride off, extending that ledge to be longer, to ride on and ride off effectively. Again, out of your average skater who likes to skate ledges, who doesn't want a longer ledge? But if that ledge works slightly better for a wheelchair to ride on and off, or a visually impaired skater, a longer ledge so they can actually find the ledge in the skate park and skate it effectively it makes a huge difference. Have you been able to apply some of those design features to some some of the new line builds? Certainly, yeah. And and you know, up I believe we've had the conversation previously, but it is hard to label a skate park as an adaptive skate park. Because then we have to, you know, define what adaptive means and who it's adapted for, knowing that that user group has such a variety of, of differing needs. We've been able to, through work with um, skaters like Dan Mancina and some of his specific needs around visually impaired skating. Yeah, Dan Mancina. Um, so he's he's great. He yeah. has a very successful podcast. He's a yeah. super cool skater. Yeah. And- <laughs> Dan is a visually impaired skater and he, I think has described his own skating is that he, he can see contrast. He can perceive contrast, but he does um, require, I think he uses a cane to sort of feel out the texture as well. Yeah. I think previously Dan could see 
contrast. Um, he has a degenerative eye disease that has progressed over the last several years. So in some of his in early interviews, he could still use shadow and contrast. I believe that ability is gone now. And so um, he's now fully blind and, and everything he does is by feel. Mm -hmm. And so in conversation with him, you know, his overall mission is to make skate parks 10% more adaptive. So visually impaired skaters can go to new skate parks and find something that they can skate and that's adapted to their needs, which I think is just such a rad mission yeah. overall and makes you feel like it's possible, you know? And so, Definitely. Um, you know, in our skate park through conversations with him, thinking about things, like I said, textures, um, lengths of ledges, access in and out of the park in a way um, that lends itself to wayfinding if you have a visual impairment, using contrast between our ledges and obstacles in the flats. Um, that was one thing that Dan mentioned that when he did have sight um, was effective for him and that a lot of low vision skaters use the contrast of the park. So integrating color into the shapes and forms of the skate park in a way that uh, low vision skaters can, can more readily see it and see the difference between the flat and an obstacle. So those have been really relatively easy adaptations um, where this is going to evolve and where this is going to progress. I'm really excited about because I don't think we have yet had the opportunity to start using, you know, integrated technology like three-dimensional soundscapes and, um, you know, things like that to, or, or 3D printed models of a skate park on plinths throughout the skate park for mapping and wayfinding. That's sort of the next level that, that this is going to go. And we're super excited for the opportunity to get to do that. That is such a, it's, it, I mean, I, I guess in some ways, you know, you think about it as like, this is kind of a radical thing. It's, it's, and it makes me very excited to hear about this and the work that you guys are doing. But, you know, it's interesting because when you think about like the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, like that, the roots in disability rights started back in like the 1960s, the 1970s, the legislation gets passed in 1990. And here it is 2023. And we're talking about making recreation accessible and like, <laughs> just hard to believe, <laughs> I know, just, you know, it's just like, so ready for this, you know, on so many levels. You know, one thing I'd want to ask you too, and I think, you know, whatever your thoughts are about this, but because you've worked with, with young people, you've, you've worked with, with youth who would be like sort of labeled at risk or, you know, um, but really kids that just, you know, uh, need that support and have extra needs. How would having access to a skate park, you know, equity and accessibility, having access to skateboarding and skate parks change a kid's life? I think what is unique to skateboarding and skateboard environments is the ability for, and the, and sort of the promoting this idea of self-determination that once you are in the space, you really get to define how you relate to that space and how you interact with the space. There are very, very few public spaces that are not dictated on how we need to move, how we need to act, um, and the way that we interact with the space. There's typically a right way and a wrong way to do it. And so in the early days of skateboarding, certainly there was a fairly strict protocol of how to act and how to look when you're in a skate park. That is not really how to look. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, Some and I mean, looks think, better than others. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You needed to subscribe to a certain set of rules to fit into that space. I believe that is changing. We have more and more non-traditional skaters who are really taking over the culture and taking over the community in the best way possible. 
And skateboard environments like skate parks are changing. The demographics are changing. The way that those spaces are used are changing. And so the value of making spaces accessible is broadening the diversity of the user group. And when that happens, it makes a, a better, more positive, more equitable and inclusive space overall. Um, and I think that's, that's, you know, one of the best rationales for starting to include everybody's perspective into skate park design. And so as a skate park designer, not coming in and saying, we know what's best for this community. Um, you know, our friends really love skating 14 foot transitions. So we're going to, we're going to make 14 foot transitions because we believe in the progression of skateboarding. And if you can't drop in on 14 feet, you're not a real skater. Where we need to be coming in and talking to the community of what are the unique needs of this community? Who's going to be accessing the space on a regular basis? And how do we make sure the terrain um, promotes that inclusion of everybody and, 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 and creates a more equitable physical space? I, I really love that, especially that, you know, how, how do we create terrain that promotes the inclusion of everyone? It's just such a great way to think about it. You know, one of the things um, that I also wanted to ask you about with New Line is, so you guys do, you know, the the planning, the design, the construction of the skate park, but you also do the programming as well. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the programming that you guys do. Um, I mean, so our our main focus is the the community consultation, the design, and the construction. Through some of my work with New Line and some of my the work of my nonprofit that does skateboard programming, is we help communities really create sustainable programming of their own. Because I don't I don't think it works to come in and work with a community for two days and pop back out and just leave them you know on their own it's more just helping empower local nonprofits organizations that are already working with youth that want to utilize that space in an, in an intentional way does any of the programming you know modeling or you know that the programming design that you do now does any of that draw from the days of when you were working as an educator and and building skateboarding curriculum Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's really where its roots are. Um, and just looking at how to effectively program these new sort of really dynamic spaces, because a lot of, you know, the typical approach or the old approach to skate park uh, design was let's hide it. Let's put it away uh, somewhere in our community where no one Under can a see freeway. it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you know, we're going to wipe our hands of it once it's once it's built. Um, and most adults stay away from those spaces. And so when you isolate a space that is highly youth focused with no adults in sight, what do you think is going to happen? And no you surprise. Get these, you get these Lord of the Flies kind of <laughs> environments that are that are chaotic, where when you choose a site that is, you know, prized amongst the community, has a high level of walk-through traffic, walk-by traffic, um, and has, you know, some level of adult participation, those spaces function quite a bit differently. And it's not the old theory of, you know, we're going to hire a commissioner or a security guard to patrol the skate park because we know that doesn't work. It's more the philosophy of how do we empower our youth and, and mentor them in a way that they take ownership of the space. They're a positive influence with the space. They, you know, um, look after it and, and from that perspective. Have you seen that develop at some of the, the builds that you guys have been involved in where the youth of the community are like really invested and keeping the park like clean, probably free of debris, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we see, and and it, sometimes it correlates to how involved they were in the consultation process of the skate park being developed. That really brings them in and helps them feel like they have ownership over that future space. That's a really cool idea. So you bring them in in the beginning. Mm -hmm. 
That's awesome. Yes. So through all of the, the state park planning, it's, as I mentioned, heavily relies on that community consultation piece of getting all the stakeholders in a room, getting feedback on what they want to see, running all the design decisions past them in a sort of an open, transparent way. So it really helps them feel like they were part of the final solution. It's also just a more effective way to design a skate park because then you are taking into account differing abilities and, and different uh, priorities for the skate space. I really value what the Delco group is doing because you're looking at skate parks through an adaptive lens. And so anything that you develop in the future, this is going to be a part of uh, and a requirement of that future development. And we need more groups like that to push for these spaces and say, we don't just need a rad skate park, we need an inclusive skate park. And we need to take these groups into consideration when you're when you're doing it. So you're not just coming in and dumping a solution on us that's not necessarily gonna work for our community. It might be a really cool skate park in terms of terrain, but it's about what works and meets the needs of, of your community. Have you seen some of that? Um, so you're in Calgary, but you know, I'm I'm wondering if you know in that part of where you're at in Calgary and maybe you know a little more south of the United States, have you seen, um, you know, the builds uh, that have grown out of specific communities? Do the designs have kind of really specific designs based on who's going to skate there? Like for example, mm-hmm. if you have a community that you know, this may be the only skate terrain for hundreds of miles, you know, and the majority of people who are going to skate there are probably, you know, young kids, right, who've never skated anywhere else, who might be lucky to have a skate, a skateboard at all. You know, what, what might that design look like versus a design that, you know, you might put somewhere else? Well, I think, I mean, first and foremost, every skate park needs an entry point. So you have to account for that skater, that rider, that user, that's their first week or two on the board is where is their safe space to learn? And it might be a flat space, um, you know, out of the way of the heavier traffic of the skate park. But then you have to start to thinking, okay, as they progress, because you don't want them to grow out of this skate park within the first couple of years of skating, what are the opportunities that they're going to have? So starting to think about skate parks in in the form of progression from that entry level and, to, and then also providing enough challenge and opportunity for them to grow. And so we work with a huge variety of communities, whether it's local indigenous communities who really want to focus on incorporating culture and art into their space and looking at things more sculpturally. We have a really active group in our city called the Skate Bats who are visually impaired skaters who are on a mission to change the face of, of our local skate parks and create adaptations within our existing parks. And so working with them and getting advice on new developments on how to design in a way that, that meets their needs. A really good example is a project we did in uh, Seattle Center that we knew was gonna be highly accessed by Skate Like a Girl um, out of Seattle and used for programming. And so getting their feedback and and them saying, these are the needs that we have so we can run our programming effectively. That skate park looks slightly different. And I remember, you know, really heated design conversations uh, discussing the height of a ledge in inches and saying, no, absolutely not. Like to run a program effectively, we need the ledge to be a maximum of this height. Where traditional skate park design um, you know, that ledge might have been an inch or two higher. And so that decision was made directly based on what the final outcome or plan for the park was, which was lessons, programs, um, and things like that. That is a really, um, like, I, I just, I think that's super cool. I, I love that. And especially that a group with a focus on, you know, young women skaters, female skaters, would really like incorporate all of that vision into the ultimate design. And yeah, design meetings can get super heated. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the, Everybody's the thing I love, from a good yeah. place, but yeah. 
the thing I love about skaters is we we've got opinions and we're not typically afraid to share them. Very passionate about those. Yeah, things. very passionate yeah. about the details. You know, there's very few groups that could eyeball the difference of uh, half an inch. But we look down at our feet, we would instantly know the difference between, <laughs> you know, eight point two five and eight point five. <laughs> <laughs> have there been any users of some of the the parks that you guys have been involved in constructing designing that have come back to you and said i love this i love what you guys did this helped me we take all feedback as information you know so the things that work work and we can take that and we can adapt it and we can change it slightly and replicate and use the pieces that work well and we also get a lot of critical feedback and we adjust According to that, you know, that's it's the cool thing about the nature of skate park design and construction is it is such an evolution um, that we we really learn from every project, you know, because there's a thousand things that work well and there's one or two that don't and we learn from it. One of the areas that I've worked with are, you know, young kids who are on the autism spectrum who have an interest in skateboarding and their use of the space is just so different than other skaters that I've worked with. There's almost like this just um, settling in on the board and the whole vestibular component of, of being able to just roll around on a space and use it. Do you have any experience in working with that population and how that population uses a skate space? I I certainly have some professional experience. I have sort of, you know, anecdotal evidence of what works well in a skate park. Um, I think that is an evolving conversation of how to create skate spaces that are adaptive for sensory processing um, disorders and difficulties. And I think currently, I mean, skate parks offer a ton of sensory opportunities, but they also offer some sensory roadblocks, depending on how the skate park is set up, how it's interacting on each day, um, you know, how the local population is using it. So it would be cool to see how that, that conversation progresses in terms of actual design decisions, but just the nature of skateboarding being such a high sensory activity, being repetitive, being, you know, it there I can see the natural link. How we sort of maximize that in the layout of a park would be the next level of that conversation. But I know when we talk about the concept of a fully adaptive park, offering opportunities within a park for differing sensory sensory opportunities. And again, that comes down to coloring, that comes down to texturing, um, where and when you use texture, uh, that that conversation could really evolve, could be, could be really cool. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, wh where, where this could end up going to is you know, that, that new line in some ways, and, and, you know, this conversation is just, just getting started, but in some ways kind of trailblazing, it sounds like by applying some of these, um, these features into design, um, you know, do you feel like that this is something that is a growing area that others are starting to catch on to, or do you still feel like it's a really kind of new idea in terms of putting like sensory features, adaptive features into skate design? I think it's a growing area for sure. It's it's never, I mean, it's never been more on the radar than it is now. So if folks aren't picking up on it, they should be, uh, uh, essentially. Um, but it's growing in terms of its application. So there are a lot of things that happen in skate parks um, that have been happy accidents for adaptive users that work. Um, things like pole jams, things like slappy banks that, you know, go up to a ledge and off a ledge. Things like using very texture in the ground, but now it's really about using it intentionally. And so, um, you know, certainly I wouldn't claim that any of us at Line are experts in this field, but 
the folks who are the experts are the users themselves. And so creating those relationships, getting feedback from creators like Dan, working with him on specific projects, including his own private home project, is you know teaching us much more about some of those specific needs. And now I can see the way that our designers are intentionally integrating it in small ways into um, you know, public parks. There were a lot of features that that came out of the ADA that just, you know, seemed like when they were first being introduced, like things like curb cuts and closed mm-hmm. captioning, like, oh, that's going to be a lot of work to, you know, implement that. Um, and those things ended up being features that could help everyone, you know, and, and I wonder if there's an element of some of the things that you're describing in, you know, as features and, and changes to this design that doesn't really change the writability of the park, but just changes the accessibility of it that somehow make it more accessible to all users, you know? Um, I wonder if that's going to kind of, because that, that trend certainly happened following the ADA legislation. And as we start to apply it to recreation, if it's going to change how we use these recreational spaces and how we think of them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think best pra- as best practices get established with the industry, that'll become commonplace, which is better for everybody. And I do agree that the evolution of this will provide opportunities for every ability of rider that are new, they're unique, but they also just work. And so that's sort of seen, that's the really exciting part is seeing the cross-sectionality of traditional skate park user to non-traditional and the things that work for both of those groups seem to work for everybody. So um, yeah, it, it, and again, going back to the conversation of how are we, introducing new users to the environment if they don't have a safe place to learn. And so making those adaptations will provide those opportunities for those beginner users on obstacles that can also be used by your most advanced skater or your most advanced user. Um, It's really cool because there's very few public spaces or environments that work that way. There are very few, and I wonder, as somebody who has a family member with a disability, like, yeah, there's, there's, it's, and it's so important too. It's so important to have those spaces. So you get these new kids that are new to, new to skateboarding, even adults who are new to skateboarding, you go to a skate park and they find out why there's like the the different texturing or the contrast. And then it, it becomes commonplace to think of a recreation space that is accessible to all users and the impact of that just sort of as like driving societal change and driving different ways of thinking about you know people with disabilities being able to access a recreational space absolutely and and you know we all see the inspirational instagram videos of a non-traditional skater or a a skater with diverse needs thriving in that space Um, and it changes the narrative it changes the way that we look at things that's happening at skate parks all across the country you go to a skate park and you see you know a 17 year old helping a six-year-old get their feet on the board getting stable on the board holding their hands down the first time they ride down a bank or the first time they drop in Going back a couple of decades, that probably wasn't happening as much in the, in the skate park environment. They were fairly intimidating, and they were it was a hard space to break into as a as a new user. I have a I have a philosophy that's one of the catalysts why scootering became so popular is because. Uh, the first wave of public skate parks were heavily gate-kept by us, skaters, and they were open public spaces that unless you wanted to, you know, work your ass off for two years to get good enough to finally go to the skate park, um, you could find a quicker way to hop on a scooter and be riding it within three days. But that's, again, 
that's just a, that's a working that's working a theory. theory of mine. Yeah. But doesn't sound like it's too far off. But you're a hundred percent right. When you walk into an environment that is accessible and inclusive to everybody, it changes the social dynamic of that space, and that's what's really cool is that these physical adaptations that invite a more diverse user group has a lasting effect on the entire population using that space because they view it differently. They create more space. And so, you know, when female skating was just sort of first burgeoning and on the rise and lots of like really core, amazing female focused groups started showing up at parks like 10, 15 members deep and taking over the, the skate park. It was the first time you've ever seen a 17 year old boy have to sit on the edge and watch. But that was a powerful social statement and it changed the way that skate parks are starting to function. And it's the same with individuals with disabilities. Those brave enough like the Dan Mancinas and WCMX athletes who have pioneered going into these spaces are changing the way those spaces function and by proxy are putting a, a responsibility on the designers to evolve, make adaptations and make these spaces more usable for them. Do you think that um, some of these features that you know New Line is using kind of will, will shape the way uh, people look at design? In terms of skate parks, do you think it's it's something that, you know, has an impact where it just becomes normal down the road to have these features? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that's the evolution and that's where this trend is is taking us in the best way possible is really having to push landscape architects, push skate park designers to a new level of responsibility and then and push their perspective and lens on how they approach a project. Um, in terms of, you know, new lines shaping the future of skate park design, I think it's less about new line changing it. It's being responsive to a new and evolving user group and, and listening to the right people. And so with that, that is pushing the change in modern skate park design is a larger, more diverse user group. And so it's being responsive to that through the community consultation process and adjusting the traditional approach to skate park design based on the new and evolving needs of its users. Let me ask you this, because you have this super cool job. <laughs> what is uh what is your one of your favorite things about what you get to do for a living with community outreach at New Line? My absolute favorite thing is meeting passionate advocacy groups, meeting people who are really like doing the work on the ground level. It's it's the community that I get to meet. I get to travel a lot to a lot of places that I wouldn't point on a map and say I'm going to to this community for uh, any kind of vacation or recreation you meet the best people and it's it's in my experience skateboarding has been the fastest way to break down perceived barriers um, whether they're social whether they're economic um, race related, ability related, gender related, those things tend to dissolve. And so how, getting to have conversations like this with people from across the world, across North America, that's hands down my favorite part of the job. And then of course, at the end of that, getting to celebrate new, dynamic, accessible public space, it feels like a win-win. That's so cool. I love that, Everett. <laughs> so cool. Okay, are you still, yeah, I'm sure you are, but you're still out skateboarding and you get to the skate park fairly often? Yes, as much as I can. Like I said, I get to travel a fair bit. I've got three kids of my own, um, you know, and, and stay fairly 
busy, but the luxury of my, you know, I'm going to say life choices, but the, 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 <laughs> what my, what my, what my position working in a skate park development firm has granted me is the, that skateboarding is an integral part of my, my role. And, you know, without that, I think we would lose touch with what we're doing that really comes down to you know why did we start in the first place oh that's awesome everett i i so want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today i'm so stoked about this interview and you just brought up so many incredibly good points and i hope that lots and lots of people listen to this thanks (laughs) i appreciate that i really appreciate it all right well thank you so much I'm Johnny. I'm Devin. And if you want to support the mission, where should they go, Devin? If you want to support skateboarding in the local area, you should go to www.skatedelco.org. Yeah, buddy. Yeah.